Hello, this is For Art's Sake, a podcast that gives voice to museum people. Here we discover their untold stories for art's sake and for your sake. I'm James. And I'm Alina. And today we have Dr. Sadia Bunstra joining us. Sadia is a historian, curator and researcher from Jakarta, Indonesia. And her work is centered around decolonization and the need to include diverse perspectives in our understanding of history. Sadia's extensive experience includes curating exhibitions at some of the top museums like the British Museum and the Tropen Museum in Amsterdam. Sadia is currently the head of collections and curatorial at the Indonesian Agency for Museums, where she challenges traditional narratives of Indonesia's history and works towards a more inclusive understanding of the country's heritage. In addition to her museum work, Sadia founded PT Culture Lab Consultancy, It's an organization that helps museums accurately portray cultural heritage. So we can't wait to talk to Sadia about her inspiring work to promote inclusivity and decolonization. Sadia, welcome. Thank you so much for having me today. Thank you for being here. Um, Obviously, that was a really brief introduction. Can you tell us in your own words what it is that you do? I think what I'm doing is, as Alina mentioned, I'm a historian uh, by training and also a curator by training. I'm trained as a museum curator, and I just have a very broad interest culturally that really ranges from like ancient Greek history to contemporary Indonesian art and everything in between, basically. And all of my projects are uh, situated within that range, but mostly dealing with Indonesian history, colonial history, as well as contemporary arts. And that can take on different forms. It can be visual arts, but also performing arts. And uh, what was it that drew you to museums? I think it really started when I was still studying history. I specialized at the time during my master's in ancient Greek history. And through that, I really got interested in museums. I visited many museums that had to do with Roman or ancient Greek history. And from there, I just fell in love with being in museums. I loved being in museums because it gave at the time, so we're talking about the 1990s, late 1990s, there were no no blockbuster exhibitions yet at the time. And most museums were still very, very quiet and provided space for contemplation and just wandering around and take in whatever you saw in front of you. And that's what I really, really loved about museums. But was there was there anything specific that made you realize you wanted to go into curation in that side of museums? Was there sort of an aha moment where you were like, ah, this is what I want to do? I don't really recall like a specific moment, but I do remember that also as a teenager, I visited Rome and was just very impressed with the art and culture that was there. And when I started really going to museums, because my family didn't used to actually visit museums, so it was more me who was sort of like the odd one out in the family who wanted to go to a museum as a teenager, which uh, everyone found very particular. But at one point, I was really wondering how are these stories created and who actually decides, you know, what goes on the wall who decides which paintings, et cetera. And I just had no clue. I had no idea, actually. But there was some sort of like curiosity about how does that process work? And from there, I was looking for an education because at the time there was also not that much education for 
to work in the museum field. So there was one course that I could take when I was still studying history. I don't actually recall, but it was about history in museums. So I took that course. And then from there, after finishing uh, my master's in history, I thought I want to learn more about that. And then first, I actually went to the Rijnwaard Academy in the Netherlands, where you get a very good vocational training. But I was still not satisfied with my question about like how does it work in deciding or selecting things. And I, maybe at the time, I don't even know if I realized that there was a curatorial process. But then I did find this new sort of course or program at the University of Amsterdam. It was just the second year, I think which was then still called museum curation. So I decided to switch and uh, move to that uh, program instead. Currently, I'm, I'm really inspired and interested in the work of uh, South American scholars that have developed this concept of coloniality and decoloniality. So that's people like Anibal Quijano, um, Walter Mignolo, Rolando Vasquez, but also Maria Lugones, who uh, works on feminist decoloniality. And what I find interesting about this idea of coloniality and decoloniality is that this is a concept that Anibal Quijano developed, I think, in the late 1980s. And coloniality uh, allows for us to see the structures that have been put in place by colonialism, but have not actually ended. So he makes a distinction between the moment in which formerly colonized states were handed over sovereignty. So they, they took over control of the state. Indigenous elites took over control of the states of uh, the former colonies. But basically the structures, the economical structures, the political structures, etc., cultural structures, social structures, mostly or largely remained in place. And that is kind of like what they understand as coloniality. So these structures that have been put in place during the colonial period and that actually still exist today. They might have changed face, but a lot of the, for example, capitalist structures that are still dominating the world today have their roots in the colonial period. But also, for example, racial structures, racial hierarchies, racism rooted in colonialism. So these things that are rooted, these structures that are rooted in, colo in colonial period that we can call coloniality. So from that standpoint, we don't actually live in a post-colonial world because we're, you know, what has been, the question is what has actually been decolonized. The control of the state has been handed over. So that has changed, but a lot of structures actually haven't changed. So the concepts uh, allows for us to see the continuities and change of those structures. And as opposed to, for example, decolonization as the moment in which the local elites took over power. So decoloniality can mean different things. It's a concept, it's a praxis, and it's a way of analyzing things. So it's not just a concept, but we can actually also practice it. So by even by seeing coloniality, we sort of like already take a critical stance towards that. And we can do, we can be decolonial in our ways of questioning. So questioning the dominant structures that have been put in place by coloniality. And for example, also trying to look at what else was there before the colonial undertaking 
or what has been silenced by coloniality, what has been submerged and made invisible, what has been suppressed by coloniality. So, for example, indigenous knowledge, indigenous or embodied knowledge that is not acknowledged within, for example, the European knowledge production or European way of making and creating art, but that we're trying to look for other indigenous expressions and value them as much as, for example, European or North American cultural expressions. So if we talk about arts, for example, or, you know, cultural expressions, then we often think in terms of, for example, contemporary art, contemporary dance, as opposed to traditional dance. So anything that's contemporary is very often associated with a tradition of dance or dance practice that has been developed in Europe and the Anglo-Saxon sort of like Axis, North America, etc. But if, for example, dance here in Indonesia, if it's, for example, Javanese dance or Balinese dance or dance from other parts, regional parts, that is very often framed as traditional So who decides what is traditional and what is contemporary? Because Javanese dance is, for example, still being practiced. Balinese dance is still being practiced. And anywhere else in Papua, there are still dance practices happening today, rooted in the past, but practiced today for future generations. So then my question is, who decides actually what is seen as contemporary and what is seen as tradition? Because it implies a cultural hierarchy. And maybe that is the importance of that, that it really, these type of, these, this kind of like thinking really implies a cultural hierarchy in which contemporary, what is called contemporary or labeled contemporary is being understood as having a higher value than, for example, traditional. This is very helpful. Thank you so much for uh, clarifying this. And you already gave some examples. However, might you be able to give some applicable examples? For example, you apply this in your work. Yeah, sure. And thank you also for asking because, yeah, those concepts are quite complex. And it also really took me some time to really understand what's happening. So I might really also not be very clear in my explanation. So I apologize for that. When it comes to sort of like how I apply this research part of my work to how I work, for example, as a curator, maybe an example that I can give is the the exhibition that I made curated last year, 2022, with Ziko Kuni, an Indonesian painter, and the, I curated a solo show with him that took place in here in Jakarta. So Zico's background is also that he's very much interested in uh, history and he also is very much interested in decolonizing history. So what we did, for example, for that exhibition is that he was already working on uh, colonial images. So he was going through archives and collections in mostly from museum collections or archives based in the Netherlands that were taken during the colonial period. And at the same time, he was also very much interested in contemporary art from Bandung. So uh, sort of like um, a movement, an art movement from Bandung called uh, Jeprut. And then at the time he was sort of like struggling about, he, he, he felt there was some sort of like connection between he, what he was doing, but he didn't really understand what was happening. So when I had these discussions about him, about his work and what he was doing and trying to do, 
what I saw, for example, that what he was doing is basically a very decolonial approach to colonial history. He was seeing these structures and saw the legacies of that in the present. So he saw a continuation of colonial structures in the present. So that is what we could call coloniality. But at the same time, he also really looked at um, this art movement in Bandung and was wondering, so what makes that this art movement in Bandung, a town not far from Jakarta, but really one of the art scenes and art centers in Indonesia, why is that not being acknowledged as um, as contemporary art or, you know, not on the contemporary global art stage? Who decides what is global art or what is contemporary art and who who decides to call that, for example, like a local movement or a regional movement? So we we were having these discussions and then because I'm not an artist, but he is a painter. So then these discussions turn into paintings in which colonial images were combined or superseded by images from performance uh, from this performance art movement, Jeprut. We hear a lot about decolonization in the museum sector, and there are lots of uh, different approaches to, to how it actually gets incorporated into museum practice. Are there any approaches that you think work particularly well? Any um, kind of key examples of good practice that you, you want to recognize in modern museums or something you've seen recently? It's a huge question, but also very interesting because I think these type of discussions really depend on, you know, uh, the countries, the former colonizing countries and their relation with former colonized countries and how that has taken shape over the course of history, but also how these countries have developed in what they are today. So I think these, all of these discussions, they should be specific, they should be located in the places where they need to be held. So I I don't think there's a specific model or something that can be applied to to just anywhere, but I think what is uh, crucial is to have these discussions in dialogue with the countries, the communities of origin, so that these uh, discussions about decolonizing museums, decolonizing collections, in Europe, in North America, Australia, and other parts, or in any part of the world that has been a former colonizing power, they sh- really should have equal discussions with counterparts in the in the countries and communities of origin. But even that, I think, um, is sometimes challenging because many of these, what we discussed earlier, you know, these these um, results of coloniality, such as racial hierarchies, are still very much in place. So how can you have a truly equal conversation about how to decolonize uh, museum collections or museums is still a challenge and still a sensitive issue, I think. I think you're absolutely spot on. There is that imbalance and that sort of one-sidedness to those discussions about decolonization. Yeah, I'm also thinking like um, maybe I want to raise also the question like to what extent can, for example, to what extent would European uh, museums be able to decolonize as the museum as an institution was also really part and parcel of putting coloniality in place. They played a major role in actually creating these cultural hierarchies, these racial hierarchies. So for me, it's also a a fundamental question that I think museums in Europe or any museum that wants to decolonize needs to ask, like, 
how were they implicated in the colonial project and how can they undo that? Sadia, thank you for highlighting these crucial questions that museums must grapple with as they work towards decolonization. Now, to change things up a bit, what drives your passion for your work and what do you find the most rewarding about it? I love that I'm in the position to be still affiliated with universities where I do have to make time to actually think and to deeply think about issues that I find important, that are important to me, and that I feel are important to think about for what society is today, and to find ways in revisiting uh, the past, and to think about how the past is still very much part of the present, and how we can look at parts of history that we uh, that have been neglected, and uh, write those histories for a more equal future. And I think with the, the combination that I've developed within my practice, this research part that then feeds in into my curatorial work and my work as a producer of performing arts, I feel that is really valuable for me because I really also get to work with artists, contemporary artists, who also have their own views, their own perspectives, but somehow it comes together. And then when it comes together, then and you create an exhibition like the one I just mentioned, or uh, I am able to bring dance performances from the region here in Indonesia to global stages, that feels really fulfilling because it just feels like creating bridges between um, and creating dialogues about these parts of the past and therefore also the present that we don't necessarily are aware of. And I think that I find really interesting to sort of like instigate some of these conversations that people might not like easily uh, stumble across, but are still important to have. Have you got any upcoming projects that you're excited about? Anything our listeners should look forward to? I think uh, some of my current projects are really something that I'm very excited about and that that also have, you know, our, our longer term projects. So the research project that I'm working on for a few university is called Pressing Matter, Ownership, Value and the Question of Colonial Heritage, which is really a global project that is based at VU University, but it works with many different museum practitioners, but also researchers across the world. Across, uh, So it also creates dialogues between the Netherlands as a former colonizing country and uh, former colonized countries and broader. So I'm working on a, on a research project that deals with plaster casts that were made by a Dutch anthropologist, physical anthropologist, Kleiweg de Zwaan, in uh, different parts of Indonesia, uh, on the island of Nias and among the uh, Minangkabau um, in Sumatra. So... Um, The question is, uh, how should Dutch museums deal with colonial heritage like that? It's heritage that has not been looted or taken away, but it's still created in a violent way by taking plaster casts off of people's faces of living people and then um, have them in the context of unequal power imbalances and then have been taken away to the Netherlands for scientific research, etc., which also helps with the construction of these racial hierarchies. So the question is, what should they do with it? But for me, what is more interesting is to understand 
how the source com communities actually view objects like that. Like, what does it mean to them? Maybe there are still people who might remember that some of their ancestors have their cast been taken, maybe not. Uh, how would they view these type of objects? Like, do they see that also as, a, do they perceive it as an act of violence or maybe maybe something else? Uh, these are also casts of their ancestors. Could it mean something more in a spiritual way as well within an ancestor tradition, for example. So these are questions that I'm really curious about. And I'm actually planning um, a research trip to NIAS um, next month, so February 2023, to start exploring some of these questions and to start conversations with these source communities. So I'm super excited about that. And then Another project, a really big project that I'm working on now is that, as Alina mentioned earlier, I'm part of, uh, we call it the transition team that helps the Ministry for Culture and Education here to set up a new organization for the museum and heritage field here in Indonesia. So that's, to me, is also very exciting because I feel that the younger generations here in Indonesia are, are very curious about their history and heritage they're very ready to go to a museum, but we need the museums also to be ready to receive them and to tell the stories that they are interested in. So I'm very excited about that as well. It's a huge challenge because it's a lot of different museums. Uh, among them are the National Museum Indonesia and also the National Gallery Indonesia, as well as a number of smaller museums. But for example, also the heritage site of Borobudur, will also be part of this new organization. So it's of a really uh, big scale, which um, provides, I think, a lot of opportunities for us to develop the museum and heritage field in a way that would be suitable for, for younger generations. I think that's really important that we you're looking at ways to keep younger generations engaged. I think there's there's so much to draw their attention and so many big sort of social and cultural questions floating around that sort of in, in the popular zeitgeist. I think having academic projects and, and museum projects that are looking at ways to engage younger audiences is, is always going to be really valuable. I'm just generally really looking forward to seeing how your projects go. I'm, I'm really excited to, to keep up with these. Yes, absolutely the same. And also it's one of the biggest challenges I think all, all museums are facing, attracting younger generations and younger people. So it will be extra exciting for us to learn how it goes. You know, I'm also very curious to see how it goes because it will be, I think, a lot of experimentation and see, you know, what works and what doesn't work. But it's also very, very exciting because the potential is just so, so enormous. There are so many people, I think, who would be interested. And at the moment, we are just not really able to cater them enough, which means that there is a lot of room for improvement. But the collections here are just amazing. They're so rich and so... Um, and so diverse. So I think that also offers a lot of opportunity uh, for the public, but also in terms of research. And if we can get it to a level that we can manage the collections in, in a way that we can also make them more accessible, I think, yeah, that would just be amazing. So, dear, um, so we understand that your work is audience-oriented and audience-driven and community-driven as well. So, Let's get down to it. Who are those audiences and who are the people you aim to address or reach out in your work? I guess it's anyone who is curious about the issues that I work on. So it's a lot about, you know, decolonizing history that we've talked about. 
So I think it's um, anyone who is curious about that. I don't think they necessarily need to have like a deep understanding about it, but somehow interested in history or in Indonesia or in art of in, from Indonesia. I guess audiences uh, in that sense quite generally. And then sort of like from there, pull them in into these more complex conversations. So maybe that's also why I'm interested in like these diverse cultural expressions, because I feel there are so many different entry points to the issues that we are talking about today, about decolonizing history, about coloniality, about these racial hierarchies, cultural hierarchies. We don't necessarily have to use that as an entry point, but sort of like maybe pull people in through just the beauty of art, through the beauty of performing arts, and maybe have them feel first and see first and have their tickle their senses, basically, and then maybe pull them in into, into these conversations. So, yeah, to be honest, I'm not even really sure if I would say, if I would call myself someone super audience oriented, but I do always think about how can I bring my message across but maybe not my interested are not necessarily audience oriented. Maybe that's what I mean. In terms of the audiences that you do reach with your work, whether or not you're you're setting out with specific audiences in mind, have you found that there are any groups who you need to work harder to engage? Anybody who perhaps takes a little bit longer to to warm up to your work? I think in general, from what I see, right, like from what I can see, and it's sort of like quite still quite limited in the response to exhibitions. And we, and I, you know, for these smaller scale uh, exhibitions, we don't really do visits or research or anything. But from responses, for example, on Instagram or something like, I do get positive responses. So I do feel like there is a niche, you know, there it is obviously a bit of a niche audience, but there is an interest and there is a curiosity. And I think the the audiences that that are harder to reach would be, I think, um, the more conservative or the more, um, how do you say that, like the the traditional white museum goers, maybe in Europe, for example. I think those audiences might be a bit more difficult to reach. But I do also feel that you know public discourses in Europe are also changing. So I do also see that some of these traditionally white audiences are starting to ask questions and starting to understand that there are bits and pieces that they might not know. So all in all, I do feel that there is a shift happening at the moment. There is a lot happening and a lot of movement. It's nice to hear that sort of, I suppose, the optimism that there is that, that shift happening. That's something we've heard from a couple of guests is, you know, there are these more conservative, more traditional audiences who perhaps are, they don't like having what they, they understand to be the truth challenged. They don't necessarily want to embrace new ideas, but that they are. Sadia, so and can you share some of the challenges you faced in your career, especially as a young curator? Did you struggle with any particular challenges early on? And also for the young museum and heritage professionals out there, what advice would you give to those who might be facing similar challenges today? Generally, I must say that I've been very lucky in the projects that sort of like came to me. Very often people approach me to work with them on a project or something just happens spontaneously and then turn into a project. I think I've been really lucky with that. I think once I sort of like found this path 
And that was, I think, really when I started doing this second master's degree in museum curation. It just, you know, it just seemed to be very suitable for me and just clicked somehow. And that also the networks that I built at the time, I was interning at the Tropi Museum at that time for a year in Amsterdam. I still work with these people, with the same people. Some of them I really keep. So, so, and that happened with all of the projects that I've done. Sort of every time it sort of like expands my network and expands the context and it deepens the relationship that I have with these people. So somehow it has grown very organically and very holistically. I think there are some, maybe some obstacles or, you know, some challenges, I would say. I guess um, since I was educated and working, I was I also grew up in the Netherlands and got most of my education, well, all of my education there. I think this influence of these racial hierarchies, I think, did influence, I think, my career in a way. Sometimes you would get things, sometimes you wouldn't. But I think it all worked out for the best for me. Like sometimes maybe I might have pursued a project or a position and I didn't get it for particular reasons. But then somehow I just, it brought me maybe on another path. So I think that's definitely there. And I think another challenge was also uh, working in the cultural field, in the museum field, it's just not always easy. There are not that many projects which also have like uh, financial uh, reverberations in, in your life. So things like that, you really sort of like have to stick it out for the long run, because otherwise, yeah, <laughs> it will just be hard. And I'm sure you will recognize that. But it's um, it has not always been easy because the contracts are also obviously, um, you know, short term things like that. So you'll, there's a lot of uncertainty, but once you get used to it or once you just accept it and deal with it, I've never seen it that much actually as an obstacle. Well, unless, you know, I was down to the last hundred euros in my bank account, but I also saw it as an opportunity because it did give me also the opportunity to work on the projects that I felt passionate about and that I really wanted to pursue. So I sort of like always focused more on that. Like, what opportunities does this give me? Because it enabled me to, for example, accept a short-term fellowship at Columbia University. I was able to do this short gig at the British Museum to work on an exhibition about Wayang, about puppet theater in Indonesia, Thailand, and Malaysia. So, you know, it has also created a lot of like amazing opportunities that I feel were once in a lifetime. And I was able to get that because I just didn't have, you know, this steady job. So, yeah, for me, it, it has just turned out for the best, I feel. But yes, you need some patience and some sort of uh, grit, I guess. That's a really lovely way of looking at things, of, of seeing those challenges, but also looking for the opportunities within and, and sort of keeping that, that positive and very stick to mindset. I think that's, that's really good. There are a couple of questions we ask everyone and uh, you're, you're no exception. So if you had unlimited funding, what kind of a museum or cultural space would you like to build? Well, I think with this new organization, this new museum and heritage organization that we're trying to set up here in Indonesia, well, that we are setting up here, I think that to me would be where I would put my money now yeah, like seriously, I mean, and also obviously I'm not, I'm prejudiced, right? But I do feel um, 
again, because it's still within the museum and cultural field. So the budgets are very, very limited. And there's just so much work to do because the collections are so broad and so wide and, and so big across the whole of Indonesia. And they all deserve to be taken care of like really, really well and be preserved in the proper way. And they deserve attention and, and love, basically. So that is definitely something that I feel like, yeah, we could definitely, you know, if I would get like that bunch of money, I would put it there immediately, yesterday. <laughs> Here we go. Uh, Sadia, thank you so much for speaking with us today. And if there's one idea you'd like listeners to take from this interview, what will this be? Oh, good question. Maybe it's a question for you too as well. Like, what is it? What was there something that stuck out for you, or that sticks out for you? For me, it's the need for sort of dialogical approaches to decolonization. That it can't just be a one-sided museums and cultural institutions thinking that they've suddenly oh they we've realized we did some bad colonial stuff. We need to fix it and ignoring you know the the source people from that from that discussion and just doing it all sort of unilaterally i think that's that's something that's going to stick with me for me creating dialects with former colonized countries is definitely one of them but also for me when you spoke about challenges and thinking about uh, challenges as opportunities it really stuck with me as well oh, i'm glad to hear it one thing yeah just one thing that you'd like our listeners to take away from the interview yeah i, I guess both of both of your points i think um a lot of my work is really about that, about creating these dialogues and to have these conversations with people. And sometimes they are very uncomfortable and sometimes they're hard. But I think if we do it in, a, in an equal and respectful way, then there is a lot possible. And I'm just trying to help, you know, be a bridge between Europe and Indonesia and Indonesia and any other part of the world, basically, and help where I can to have these conversations. And yes, for sure, for younger people who want to, and to the field of museums and culture, I do think like they just have to do it. If they want to do it, just do it and see where it takes you. But yes, we should all accept that there is some uncertainty for sure. But I would say if you can, just stick it out and things will get better. Thank you so much. It's been lovely to talk to you today. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to For Art's Sake. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure to subscribe and check out our previous seasons. You can follow us on Instagram at forartsake.uk and on Twitter at sake underscore arts.